And amen. Open your Bibles with Matthew chapter 4. This is our key verses. And uh, as we're doing, going through praise and worship, um, some of the time my best thinking is during praise and worship. Uh, I realized that, that I've been saved this year, I think it's 42 years. Um, and, and it's been ups and downs, ins and outs, but I've been walking with the Lord for about 42 years. But I've got to say this, that, and this is true I think for a lot of us, there's often when we're walking with the Lord no real focus to what that means. So we, we fall into habits like we do with our life. We, you know, you're, you're, if you have a job, you'll get up. If you have a regular job, you get up on Monday morning, you go to work, you go through routines, you come home, you go through your week, you know, thank, thank goodness it's Friday. And then, you know, you have a weekend and we go through these routines and, you know, we go through this uh, patterns in life. You know, you see, it's interesting, you look back, I look back on a young couple like Pastor Kurt and Jennifer and I can remember back when we were that age and what we were doing. And then, well, when we left and went to Bible school and, and uh, we got out there and, and we had two surprises. They're sitting back on the row back there. Uh, we weren't expecting them, but we we're sure glad God gave them to us. And I did tell them, don't follow in our pattern and have two more children. Uh, and when you go out there. Um, but my point is that there's, there's just patterns and routines of life. But often we walk them out without any focus or purpose. Why are we here? Why do we come to church? Why do we why do, we do what we do? Why, why did God not just bring us to the place where we receive Christ and then just take us out of here? Because this is the only place you can get in trouble. I don't mean church, but I mean this life down here. It's the only place you can get in trouble. So in heaven you're not going to... So why, if He just wants us, why didn't He just do this and out of grace and mercy just pull us out of here so we can't get in, in, any, in any trouble? Because God has a reason for us to be here. And, and unless you know the why you're here, every what you do becomes, a, becomes drudgery. But when you know why you're here when you know why you come to church, when you know why you read your Bible, when you know why you're faithful to your wife, when you know why you raise your children in the nurture net, when you know why the motivation is there and the heart is in there. And the Bible is full of the why God did what He did. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible doesn't just say yeah, the fact that God gave us His Son, it tells us why God does what He does. So a couple of years ago, I felt the Lord begin to give me focus to my life. And that focus has been helping me to make decisions. That was what focus will do. And the focus is in this, Matthew chapter 4. This is Jesus calling His disciples. And this is what we're learning to do. We're studying His call of His disciples. And because we are, want to be disciples of His, what that means for us. So Matthew chapter 4, we've read this every week, verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So all he said to them was, Follow me. That's it. And that's the focus that I felt God begin to bring me through. And not just that, I felt the Lord impress upon me that He was doing with this in me and that I was in turn to lead you in this same focus. His call is simply to follow Him. Everything else we do comes out of our answer to that call. And if it's not coming out of our answer to that call, then it's not for Him 
and his hand will not be in it. We looked several weeks ago at what follow me. This is so simple. We complicate it and miss it. I listened to the, the mess, my own message. Sometimes I get more out of listening to them when I did preaching them because I remember what I was seeing when I preached it. And it's like hearing something all over again. And I listened to that first message when he, ta- I ta- he, yeah, he talked about, the preacher talked about, uh, uh, the, the, the simplicity of, of follow me. Follow. Just follow. Because we want to know, where are we going? Well, if you follow me, I'll get, Jesus says, I'll get you there. What is it going to involve? If you just follow me, I'll get you there. It requires faith in Him to follow when you don't know where you're going. When we want to know where we're going, it's because we're not going to trust Him that his, has His best intentions for us and getting us there. So it's a discipline, and we're going to learn as we walk through some of this, the discipline that it takes to learn how to do that. And then last time, Christopher Alam was here last week, two weeks ago, we looked at follow me, who it is we're following, who it is that's calling us, and we looked at one aspect of that, which was that it's a personal call. He's calling us into a personal relationship. We saw that when Jesus called the Apostle Paul and told him, why are you persecuting? He, he talked about him, Paul was persecuting the church. But when Jesus spoke to him, he didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? He said, why are you persecuting me? And we'll talk down the road a little more about why that's so critical. But he calls us into a personal living relationship. And one of the questions I felt to ask ourselves is this. Is Jesus more real to you this year than he was a year ago? If you can't honestly say yes, then there's some growing we need to do. It's most likely because we haven't focused on the right focus. So we began to look at that. Uh, today we're going to look at, at, um, at who is this one that's calling us to follow him. Now, our response to a call, we'll just talk about general calls, is, is, is it, it, who calling is, is significant. When I was practicing law, I had a secretary, and one of her responsibilities was to screen my calls. Uh, because I'd get calls from all kinds of people. I'd get calls from, from uh, disgruntled clients, not many of those, but i get some clients I really didn't want to talk to, uh, because I had other matters that were more pressing. If I were preparing for a trial or a closing or something like that, and I've got someone that, I've had some that would call me every day just to check on how something was, I would instruct my secretary what to do. For instance, if it was, if it was a telemarketer or a salesperson, she didn't even need to put it through. She said, I just, you know... She wouldn't lie for me. She's not here. He's, he's not available to talk to you because I wasn't available to talk to her. So when she would say, uh, uh, John, I have a call for you, my question was always, who's calling? Because how I was going to respond to that call depended on who that person was that was calling and what they meant to me and to what was important in my life. So if it was my wife, she didn't even have to ask me. She knew immediately because she, my secretary had instructions that my wife had access to me at any time. Now, I may not be able to talk to her, but she could put the call right through. She didn't say, you know, do you want to talk to your wife? She would say, your wife is calling, and if I couldn't talk to her right now, I said, well, tell her I'll call her back in a few minutes. My point is, how I responded, my question to her was, who was calling? 
What I did with that call was respond to it based on who that person was and how significant they were going to be to what was important in my life at that time. And we all go through that at times. We, you know, you maybe have answered a phone call and find out it was a tele... They're getting pretty good, aren't they? They now use local numbers, so you don't, you know, it's like... And you, I can tell with my name because they can't pronounce my name right. They say, is this Mr... Because they really, they're going down a lit. I don't want to go there. I get distracted. <laughs> now, but with God, God knows us. It's no different with God. He knew that we need to know who it is that's calling us because it will affect how we respond. Let's go to Exodus chapter 3. God knows us. He understands us. He made us. Now, here's the situation. Israel has been in bondage to, to, to Egypt for 400 and about 430 years. And, and so I don't want to go back over why and how they got in there, and, but they overstayed their need to be there. And now, finally, they've had it, and they've cried out to God to deliver them, and God has already has their deliverer well prepared ahead of time. His name is Moses, and he's already, at this point, 80 years into his preparation. 40 years under Pharaoh's leadership and 40 years under God's leadership in the wilderness. And now God is responding to Israel's call and God is telling him now to now is, I've called you to go back and tell Israel it's time to leave. Leave under the, leave the dominion of the most powerful ruler on the earth at the time, Pharaoh. So, Moses' question is going to be, they're going to go, hear me, by the way, the last time they saw Moses, he was fleeing for his life out of Egypt. So Moses is not going back there with the best press clippings. So the question in his mind, why should they follow me? So the question he's going to ask God here is, who shall I say is calling? Who shall I say is telling them? We're going to go to verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I tell them? In other words, who's calling us out? Because we've got to know the person that's calling us is going to be able to deliver us. Because there's great risk of telling Pharaoh we want to leave. So we've got to know that the one who's telling us to go is is the one who can actually make this happen. So this is a legitimate question. Who's t- who are you that's telling us? Look at God's answer, verse 14. And God says to Moses, I am who I am. Period. Now, unless you meditate on that, it takes a while for that to sink in. Moses is asked, what's your name? And God says, I am, because normally we'd say, I am John, I am Sally, I am the pastor, I am... God just says, I am. I just am. Well, in order to know the depth of what he's saying there, you've got to understand what that word means in Hebrew. It means the self-existent one. I just am. I don't come from anybody. I don't owe anything to everybody. I just am. I am the source of of everything. Everything else has something else after am. But I just am. I am the self-existent one. And that name became so sacred 
to the Hebrews that they would not pronounce it. You know how you see a clip on the news and they'll go, and, and all of a sudden they'll put a, a boop over somebody's mouth and go on like that? Well, that's because it was a naughty word. This was because this name was so holy and sacred, they would not utter it from their mouth. And we let the name roll off our mouth without even thinking. Well, I won't go there. And then he goes on to say, because they're going to need to know what authority does Moses have to tell them, follow me, we're going to leave. So here, in order for the people to follow the leader, they've got to know who it is, that's, whose instructions are you following, and is he able to carry out what he's telling us to do. So God's answer is, I'm the source of everything. There's nobody bigger, nobody greater, nobody more magnificent, nobody who can deliver you more than I can. I just am. And then he goes on to explain his relationship to them. The the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Now let's go over to Exodus 20. Now they've come out, they've been delivered, and they're now about, I think, three months into the, their journey. And God calls them to the base of Mount Sinai, calls Moses up there, and now he's going to give Moses their instructions for how they're to live their life as his people. And we call these the ten suggestions, I mean commandments, excuse me. Well, we say commandments, but we live them as their suggestions. And look how it starts. God doesn't say, this is what you're supposed to do. He tells them who's telling them that. And God spoke these words to Moses saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. So when God is giving them commandments telling them what they're going to have to do, he started by telling them who it was that was giving the commandments. He's giving them the basis for why they should obey him. Because it is the Lord God, their God, who brought them out of Egypt. I am who's issuing these commandments. Now we have this term when, 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 especially when we're teenagers and we're growing up and, and we want to know and somebody says, you know, your parents say, well, you need to, don't do this or do this. Well, who is it that's telling me what to do? That's our flesh, isn't it? So God's telling them ahead of time who it is that's telling them what they have to do. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I created you. That's why I'm telling you, you've got to do what I tell you to do. My mother used to have this conversation with us when growing up. Because I said so. <laughs> Don't need another reason. Now you get older, you need to explain the reason so that your children can begin to understand there's a purpose behind it and so that they can begin to process it for themselves. So, but when you start out, they need to know, because I said so. I could go into Molly's training here right now. But this training she went through was all with treats and you can't ever say no. You just give them positive reinforcement and she regressed. So I pulled her out because she needs to sit because I said so. 
Now, treats can help get the process started, but eventually it's got to be because I said so. She needs to know that I'm the authority in her life. Then she's free to... Oh, I've got to be careful. I'll go off down there. That's another lesson for another day. Isaiah 43. What we want to see here is when God is, is directing them, leading them, correcting them, or even encouraging them, He starts out by telling them who it is that's talking to them or who's calling them. I said Exodus. It's Isaiah 43. Did I say Isaiah? Sam Sumker. I don't want to embarrass anybody because that's what I'm doing with my mouth. Where is Isaiah? No, it's in here. Isaiah 43. Now in here, I'm going to drop down to... um, Verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, neither will a flame scorch you. Now stop there a second. That's a promise that no matter what they go through, God, the, the one that's promised is going to protect them. But now, how can I believe that that's so? Go back to verse 1. Now thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob. That refers to Israel. In other words, the one that's telling to give you this reassurance is the God who created you. So is He able to perform it? He's the one that created you. And He formed you, O Israel, therefore free not, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by your name, you are mine. So even when God wants to give them promises of assurance, He starts by reminding them of who it is that's telling them this. So apparently in God's own mind, which is perfect, we need to know who it is that's telling us what He's telling us to do. Who it is that's talking to us, telling us what to do. Let's go to Luke chapter 5. We looked at this several weeks ago. So now we're going to go to Jesus. Jesus is calling them to leave everything and to follow Him. So we're going to look at who it is that's telling them to do that and why they responded. We looked at these verses several weeks ago, but we're going to look at them from a little po- different point of view. So it was when the, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and he saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the, excuse me, one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little bit from the land, and he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Now launch out in the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered him and said, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Now stop there. We talked about this several weeks ago. This scene is here. Simon's a professional fisherman. We have several in, in the church here. Professional fishermen. They know where the fish are and when the fish are there. Not only that, they've just come back and there were no fish there. So they know that at this time there are no fish out there. They know by experience, their senses tell them there's none, and their, their experience, their training tells them there's none. But this carpenter, this landlubber, is telling them to go out and throw their nets in again. So Peter has a decision to make. Am I going to respond to him based on my experience, 
based on what my senses are telling me, based on my training, or based on what I know, because I'm an experienced fisherman, or am I going to make the decision to do it based simply on, what does he say? Nevertheless, at your word, at your word, not any word, at your word, because you're the one telling me to go do this. Notice what he calls him. Master, I have toiled all night. The word master in Greek is a word for overseer, kind of like a shepherd or somebody that has oversight over someone. So they have a, a great a responsibility, they have a knowledge of, of something, and they have a, a, some degree of authority. So at this point, he's acknowledging he's not just a rabbi or a teacher, that he has somebody greater than that. And he says, because I see you as somebody greater than that, I'm going to do what you said, not what my experience and my training tells me. Verse 6. And when they'd done this, we talked about this several weeks ago, he obeyed what he was commanded to do. Obedience gives birth to faith. And faith gives birth to obedience. We'll talk more about that as we go down the road about how we respond to this call. And when they'd done this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets were, were, their net was breaking. Verse 7. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Only a little while longer, there was no fish out there. Now at the word of this master, their boats are filled with fish. Verse 8. When Simon saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. His understanding of who this man is has gone from rabbi or teacher to master, somebody with more knowledge and oversight, to now Lord. Lord means one with ultimate authority and as he has a revelation of who this man is he falls on his knees because he sees who he is I am a sinful man compared with who you are so there's a progression of the revelation or understanding of who Jesus is and the greater that understanding is the greater the response is to what he's telling them to do Mark chapter 2. Verse 13. We've referred to this before, but we're going to read it. And then when he went again by the sea, and all the multitudes came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw a Levi. Later his name changed to Matthew. He saw a Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. He's an IRS agent. He collects tax money, and he's Jewish, he's Hebrew, so he represents the Roman government. We talked about this several weeks ago. He represents the Roman government to collect taxes from his own people. And not only does he collect taxes, but he has a license to collect as much as he can get out of them, and whatever he collects beyond what Rome requires, he gets to keep. So he's, he's, he's prospering, at the, literally the expense of his own, his own people. So he's resented. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, two words, follow me. And he arose and followed him. That's it. No other explanation. 
Jesus didn't promise him some great reward. Jesus didn't tell him where they were going. Jesus didn't say, this is what you're going to get out of it. Jesus simply said, follow me. Immediately, he leaves his money there. He leaves his job. He, and I'm not telling you to leave your job. He leaves everything and simply obeys those two words, follow me. And so my question is, for me and for you, why? What would cause someone to do that? What would cause someone with just hearing those two words to get up? Because it makes no sense. It makes no rational, natural sense. But it all comes based on who it is that calls you. I want to read a quote from a book that's been very instrumental in my life lately. It's a book called The The Cost of Discipleship, written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor uh, during the the, the beginning of World War II. And uh, uh, he founded, it was called the Confessing Church, an underground church. He was one of the first of the the pastors in, in Germany at that time to recognize who Hitler really was and what he was really after. Because Hitler managed to convince the pastors of Germany that he was really a gift from God to help bring this nation back and establish something. And he fooled all of them, really, except Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer eventually became a spy. Bonhoeffer eventually was part of the, 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 um, the plot to, to kill Ch- uh, Churchill, not Churchill, um, Sum- Sumker, <laughs> no, to kill, to kill Hitler. Uh, and then he was, uh, he was arrested uh, by the Gestapo and he was martyred, hanged literally days before the Allies uh, came in. And some of the most powerful things we have uh, from the 20th century to walk following Christ come from this man, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so this is a man that didn't just preach it, he lived it. And so this is, this is his response to how why Levi responded. For the simple reason that the cause behind immediately following of the call by his response, is simply Jesus Christ himself. In other words, who called him? It is Jesus who calls. And because it is Jesus, Levi follows at once. By the way, this is in my notes if you want to download the notes. This encounter is a testimony to the absolute, direct, and unaccountable authority of Jesus. There was no need for any preliminaries and no other consequences but simple obedience to the call. Because Jesus is the Christ, He has the authority to call and to demand obedience to His Word. Jesus summons and men, summons men to follow Him, not as a teacher, not as a pattern for good life, but as the Christ, the Son of of God. Jesus does not, did not promise Levi any benefits. He didn't tell him what he was going to get out of following him. He didn't tell him what the blessings were. He didn't give him any reasons why he should follow him except that it was Jesus, the Messiah, who was the Son of God, who called him. And yet many people today are responding to Christ based on what they're going to get out of it. They're responding because they're going to be blessed. They're responding because God's going to prosper them. They're responding because God's going to take care of all their needs. They're going to be responding for all kinds of other reasons than simply responding to who it is and the grace 
of that call. We'll talk about the grace of that call a little down the road. The problem is, whatever calls you to Him, if you lose that, or it doesn't happen, or you're disappointed, your reason for following Him evaporates. So if you've responded to Him because of how He's going to bless you and how He's going to take care of you and how He's going to do all these things for you, what happens if you don't see that? If that's what calls you to Him, then the basis of what calls you to Him is what's going to hold you to Him when things get tough. And they will get tough in your life. Because Satan will come to challenge your decision to follow him. This is why Jesus talks in the book of Revelation to the letters to the seven churches, he who overcomes. There's so many promises to he who overcomes. That tells me there's something to overcome. And not everybody will overcome. So one of my responsibilities before the Lord is to help you establish why you're following him so that you can stand the test when the test comes because it will come. John chapter 6, we'll get a good example of this here. Now, the background here is Jesus has an enormous crowd following him. I mentioned this several weeks ago. We, we tend to think of the disciples as the twelve. But the Bible ultimately calls them the apostles of the Lamb. And there were only twelve of them and only eleven at the end because Judas betrayed him. But there were other disciples. Disciples just means a disciplined follower. So at one point it was clear in Luke there were 70 others that followed him and they left things to follow him. And then there were larger crews. There was the multitude that followed him around. And what's happened here, as a preface to what the scriptures we're going to read, is that there's a multitude that's followed him and he just fed them free food in the wilderness. And you give people free food, they'll follow you anywhere. The pastor I know, a teacher I know of was preaching in, in Germany in a church and he said, they, nobody wanted me to stop. We, I kept going for hours. Then I realized they were, they were feeding them free beer. <laughs> you free Christians food, they'll listen to you for hours. Of course, they'll doze off. But. So that's what's happened. Then what Jesus started to do, started saying some difficult things. Started drawing some lines. See, Jesus wasn't trying to build a big church. Our purpose here is not to build a church. Our purpose here is not to build a big church. That may happen, but that's not our purpose. Our purpose is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry so we can take the church out there where the fish are, out there, and take the gospel and take Christ's caring and love outside of these walls. And if we do that, He'll build the church. So that's not our purpose. So Jesus says some very difficult things, challenging things. At one point, He gets to the highlight of it, and He says to them, you know, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no place with Him. What's that all about? That sounds like cannibalism. Well, He's talking about being one with Him and being united with Him, but He wasn't afraid to say those things. He said some other things, and what happened is people began to get offended and afraid and began to leave. And so He looks up, and they're all gone. That felt better. Jesus preached one sermon and everybody left, but His staff. I haven't had that happen. All right, let's take a look at the verses. That's the background. 
Verse 66. And Jesus said, Therefore I said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been... Wait a minute, where am I? Yeah, that's right. 66. From that time on, many of the disciples went back. Notice they're disciples. They turned back and walked with him no more. And I almost feel the irony of this. Jesus turns to the twelve and says, Do you want to go away? You can almost hear him say, Are you going also? Look at Peter's response. Verse 68. Remember, see, Simon's the one that just called him Master and then saw that he was Lord. Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? It almost implies they thought about it. For you have the words of eternal life. And also, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter is saying the reason we're still here although everybody else has left. The reason we're still here, even though you've said things we don't understand and they're not popular and they may make us feel uncomfortable, the only reason we haven't left is because we realize who you are that has called us. You are the Messiah, the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. In other words, the answer is the same as it was when God spoke on Mount Sinai to Moses. I am the God who created you. It's the same answer God gave to Moses when he told him to go back and tell the Hebrews to leave. I am that I am the one that was the God of your fathers. In other words, it comes back to who it is that is calling you. Who it is that is calling you. That's why they couldn't leave. They knew who called them and the authority with which He called them. Now let's go to Matthew 7. I've talked about this verse so many times, but it really is key to so many things. Matthew chapter 7. You'll see the same principle here. Verse 21. Not everyone... This is some of the most powerful words in the Bible to me. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But I thought the Bible says if we declare him Lord. This is Jesus saying this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Look at the next verse. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? Stop there a second. What, what Jesus is saying, there's going to be many of you, many that say to me, we did great things for you. There were miracles. The, what we thought were the gifts of the Spirit. He said, how can that happen? How can people prophesy in His name and it's not Him? What well, happens all the time? Thus says the Lord God Almighty. The Bruins shall win tonight. <laughs> Anybody can say, Thus saith the Lord. But what about casting out demons in your name? Jesus talks about that at one point. He says, Satan can cast out Satan by his own strength. 
These are familiar spirits. And they are in church. Spirits that, 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 that mimic or, or, or counterfeit the real spirit. And done many, because here's the difference. Oh, I'm going to taught this before. Because the Spirit of God is always subject to the will of God. Remember what Jesus said? How can you call me Lord and you don't do the will of my Father? So these were things that were done, but they were not done in submission to the will of the Father because demon spirits will not submit to the will of the Father. That's why Jesus says, or that's why Paul says in Rome, in, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he said, no spirit can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. I mean, really, the Lordship of Spirit. Be under the Lordship of Jesus. There it is, under the Lordship of Jesus. Only the Spirit of God is under the Lordship of Jesus. Those other spirits are not under His Lordship. And done many wonders in your name. In other words, we did all these things for you. And we call you Lord. Look at the next verse. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And here's the key. You who do what you want to do. That's what lawless means. You who do what you want to do, even if it's good things for me. You're doing it because you've decided it's what you want to do for Him. That's what they did in the garden. So here we come all the way around that the basis of our relationship with Jesus is His Lordship. It's the Lord Jesus who's called us. Getting quiet in this Presbyterian church. The only thing that will sustain you, the only thing that will cause you to live a right life, ultimately, is His Lordship over you. Who it is that speaks to you. And what a, by what authority He speaks. This is why I've said to him so many times, what place does this Bible have in your life? Is it a decoration in your house? Is it a resource you turn to when you need something? Scripture cards on your... Nothing wrong with that. Or is that the authority of God speaking to you? This is my commandment. Here's... And see, what we're going to learn as we go forward is it's very easy to find out as we go forward what place He has in my life. Very easy to go... When we go forward to find out what place does this Word have in my life. Because what do I do when this Word tells me one thing and I don't want to do it? And this is the best one. This is my commandment. That you love one another. Well, I love my brethren as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than the, no man than this, that he lay his life down for my brothers. If we're really Christians... I'm not talking about perfect, because I'm telling you, I'm only a little further ahead on this than I'm leading you at this point. But I can see where God's calling us to go. We've talked about needing one another, being, being, helping one another, being there for one another, but God's calling us to do that at a much greater level than we do that. To get outside our comfort zones. And to truly love one another 
whatever that requires. As I have loved you. And this is what the, our Lord has commanded. So when somebody's offended me, God dealt with me about this this morning. None of you. Something way in the past. And I just saw somebody's name on Facebook and I'm like, because I don't go on Facebook very often, but I went inside of me and it's like, I had to deal with that. And this was somebody where I was right and they were wrong. But I had to deal with that. And I said, Lord, that person's my brother. I may not like them. I may not like where they are. But they're still my brother in you. So I have no right to respond to them or react to them based on what they've done for me or not done for me. My only right to respond to them is based on you. And you gave your life for them. And I stopped that train of thought before it would get in my heart. This is my commandment. So this is something we have to learn how to live out every day in the crucible of everyday life in a world that's fallen, in a world that's foreign to us, in a world that, that hates the Christ that we, that we give our life to and live it out with other brothers and sisters in Christ who aren't as perfect as we are. And if you really want to know how to live that out, get married. Our kids were talking about, is it, is, is, is it greater to have hit the milestone she had in her, in her age or to, or to be married for 52 years? I said, that's a no-brainer. You can reach a certain age just by keep breathing. But to stay married for 52 years, that takes a grace of God and that takes work. Because marriage is not designed to make you happy. It's designed to teach you to deny yourself and to take up your cross daily and follow Him. Amen. We better stop. I want to end with this question. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to, I want to leave this with you so that the Holy Spirit can begin to work in you what He's working in me. What place does Jesus have in your life? Some consider him their best bud and talk to him that way. And we'll talk next week about another aspect of who he is. His love, his goodness, his kindness. But before you can look at that, you've got to realize he's also the one who loves us as in kind and good, is Lord. So many people look at his, his, him as their best buddy. They look at him, they want to be intimate with him. But you're being intimate with the Lord of all creation. We can't ever lose our respect for who it is. This is what the fear of the Lord is. It's not afraid of Him. It's a reverence for who it is that is now your brother. It's a reverence for who it is that's now your father. It's a reverence. Some say He's Savior, and He is. But the one who's your Savior is your Lord. Some think He's just a religious figure to be worshipped from far off. And we're to worship Him, but not from far off. So as we go forward with our journey, the Holy Spirit's going to continue to flesh out in our lives these questions. Let's pray. Father, we're endeavoring to hear the call to follow You, whatever that may mean. And our confidence is not in ourselves and our own commitment.
because we've displayed what we can do already. But our confidence is in the one who's calling us because he who calls us is faithful and able. Our confidence is because it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to do his good pleasure. That's why we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, because you are the one that's at work in us. And so, Father, we just put our lives into your hands today to go forward on this journey with you. And we thank you for the grace and privilege that you would call us to this in Jesus' name. In a moment, we're going to be um, receiving the Lord's table together. But before we do, um, I want to give anybody who's here this morning that's never received Christ as your Savior and never received Him as Lord in your life the opportunity to do that. Jesus says in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. There must be a fundamental change in your nature that changes who you are on the inside. And you cannot do that to yourself or for yourself. He has to do that in you. And how does He do that? By you calling upon and asking Him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's not just saying the name of Jesus. That's calling upon Him to come into your life as the one that paid for your sins and then taking your life as it is right now and putting it in His hands to be Lord. If you've never done that before, I want to pray for you this morning. We're talking about where you're going to spend eternity. That's what this is very simply and clearly about. If that's you, if you've never done that before, I want to pray for you this morning, and I want to pray with you this morning. But I need you to let me know by raising your hands. I know the elders, uh, ushers will help me in the back. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, well, Pastor, I've done that before. But to be really honest with myself and with you, I'm not walking with him anymore. I'm not talking about going through a little dry spell. If this is you, you know it's you. And maybe you're mad at God because you think He's failed you somehow, or as far more common, you think God's mad at you because you think you failed Him somehow. Well, the good news I have for you is God's never stopped loving you. And this morning, He wants to forgive you, put His arms around you, clean you up from whatever it is you've gotten into, and set you back on your walk with Him. If that's you, I want to pray for you. Both of those invitations are on the floor this morning.